Okay, welcome back. Yes, we are here. It is episode <laughs> twenty-two. Diggity, diggity, twenty-two of twenty-two. Our, yeah. yeah. Which so this is science in between. Science in between. Of science in between. Yeah, I'm just Scott. in case people are wondering. This is Ollie. Yeah. Um, and if you're with us, this is uh, well, maybe this is twenty-three. This might be twenty-three. If it is twenty-three, you know what we got to say. Yeah, yeah, you got to say it. I got to say that we're back in our prime. Look at us. Yes. Will that ever get old? It won't for me. My my kids hear it all the time. And it, it makes me laugh every time. Every time there's like my birthday is back in, you know, I have to wait a couple of years. But, uh, yeah. you know, I'm like, I'm in my prime. And this something to look forward to. This podcast is back in its prime. At least for one episode. Yes. And then we're, <laughs> we're done we're for a back. while. <laughs> then we're divisible again. Yes. Uh, there's some science folks out there who find that funny. They enjoy that. I bet. Um, all right. So if you've been with us for the last handful of weeks, we're doing this uh, podcast book club where we're reading science, uh, science in the city by, by our really good friend, Brian close, Brown. Close personal friend. <laughs> right. Yes. Brian, Brian Brown. We should get our people to effort uh, getting him on this, you know, you know, gonna, <laughs> getting in this podcast. You have people, right? Get them on yeah, on this. I have people. Yeah, I'll, our producers. Uh, right. Our, so, so the lead into that is here. Go listen to these episodes of us like being idiots. Yeah. And then, and then see if you want to join us. <laughs> I think that's a big no. I think yeah, that will be a, a big hard no. <laughs> That's great. Hard pass. Yeah. Mm, yeah. I think I'm busy that day. <laughs> what day is it? Any day. Any day. You name the day I'm busy that day. Sorry. I got nice. stuff going on. So this is chapter seven where uh, Brian talks about strengths and weaknesses in yep. STEM education. And Policy, it, it co- practice, and and STEM future. And he covers the basis. I mean, he 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 looks at it from a bunch of different perspectives, um, from an assessment standpoint, from a policy standpoint, from you know a teaching classroom teaching standpoint, and 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 like he says, you know, it's he presents some challenges, some weaknesses, and then he also provides some opportunities for us too, as for those of us, and and and. I know we have been fanboys the you know last last like six episodes seven episodes, yeah. but I'm going to um, offer some disagreement with Dr. Brown today. I'm going to uh, disagree with him, and maybe we have the same disagreement because you you mentioned that you have one too. Maybe, um, yeah. I mean, I will say you know this for me this this is the contrasting cases of the book, right? Like the last chapter was the one I was like, um, this is. It was the last chapter, right? That no, yeah, it was the hero a, teacher that that yeah, that was the last chapter, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That was the one where I was like, this is like outstanding, stands by itself, really sure. love it. And then chapter seven, I was like, meh. Right. That was it's, that was the word I used. Meh. meh. But yeah, I mean I and I yeah, I think I disagree with him and and we'll see whether we disagree about the same things, but um he, I mean, he, he's naming his priorities and the fact that you and I have different priorities maybe shouldn't be a surprise, right? I mean, we're different people. We have different things that we care about and, and he's trying to maybe solve different problems than we are, but, um, I don't but disagree yeah. with his priorities per se. I disagree with one of his solutions. 
Hmm. Um, okay. Well, I might disagree with both, so this will be fun. Oh, uh, yeah. This will be great. Look at us. And this will definitely secure his uh, yes. never appearing on this podcast. His, his commitment to have nothing to do with us. <laughs> yes. Distance yeah. himself from any mention of this podcast. Yep. Those All right. So where do you want to start with this? Do you want to talk about the, like, what he outlines as the weaknesses? Do you want to talk about like, you know, where we disagree? I, yeah. I, well, let's do this briefly. I'll let you get started on, on like where you disagree. And, but I just to put it to, to frame it in the context of the book. So he's started the last few chapters or maybe every chapter with sort of a story about his life or a story about something um, to sort of frame his argument. And in this one, he talks about Netflix versus Blockbuster, but his, his fundamental argument is we as science educators need to identify what our strengths are and play to them. And then we also need to identify what our weaknesses are and work on them. So, I mean, that as a general premise, um, makes a lot of sense. Right. So I think that's, that's the, um, the thing that, that he set up this chapter with. And the one thing I'll say about that is, you know, unlike the other chapters, which felt personal, this felt generic. Yeah. Right. It, so that's part of the reason that it, it, you know, this doesn't feel like this is a story about Brian's life, which it's not, it's a story about a conflict between two, you know, big corporations. And so it didn't, it didn't have the same stakes for me. And yeah. And, he, and I think he's talking about science education as almost like an industry, right? Like as mm -hmm. a, you know, if we're going to have this, this big industry be successful um, in you know, the 21st century, this is what we have to do. And we have to explore the strengths and we have to ex explore the weaknesses. And then he uses this Netflix thing as the, as the way to get into that. And, and it's, to me, it's, it's like, um, it's disruption, right? It's the, dis the story of disruption, right? So if, if you've been working in, you know, in disruptive technologies and we, you and I have, um, that this, this kind of like story or framing, is 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 tired right it at least to me it's like oh you know because it's been you know it was the the way they framed MOOCs. you know it's the way they framed you know like so much music and streaming and 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 yeah and so it's it it's a little bit tired for me because i work in this in this field so much and and sometimes those uh the, the way that they're framed aren't always transferable like netflix isn't isn't science education. Blockbuster isn't science education. It's a, and I think that you're right because of the other chapters were told from a very personal place. This was, uh, it was a, a little bit more of a, I don't want to say a challenging read. It was just not as personally connecting to me. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And I think your, your point too there about, you know, science ed isn't a corporation. I think that's that's important to think about in lots of ways. Like one of them is just that, you know, corporations have sort of mission, they're guided by a single and, you know, person or group of small group of people. And science education is not like that. Right. It is very diffuse, right? So, so your, uh, your ability as an individual science educator to have influence is small. And even, even the big named people like, you know, uh, folks that are writing NGSS or who are, you know, the sort of dominant figures in science education research, like those folks have only marginal impact on, on the, the giant ship that is science education. If you think of it as basically every place that science gets taught 
in our country, right? Right. And one of the things that Brian does is expand that explicitly to say, you know, we have to think beyond the boundaries of K-12 science classrooms um, and think about the after-school time and the museums and the informal spaces and the other places where science is being learned. And if you expand it to that, like, it's an, it's an enormous entity. So thinking that any, any people can sort of make, you know, significant change in it is, is tough. Yeah. And I'll say that, that despite our reservations, there's some really good stuff in this chapter. Like, I, I think the part where he was like, look, you know, science has this thing about it, this wonder, this amazement about it that draws people to it. And we have to do a better job of, of recognizing it and using that. And, and I think where, where he made me kind of chuckle or at least like open my eyes a little bit was uh, when he said, look, you know, they don't have the math channel on television. They don't have the English channel, but they have lots of channels on television that are dedicated to science. You know, there's a NASA channel that people get sucked into. There are like, you know, National Geographic, which is a lot of science. And then they have museums like, you know, no one's going to the math museum. No one's going to. Well, it doesn't exist. That's why right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. That's exactly yeah. the point is that. Yeah. But almost every major city in America has some sort of hands on science museum. Right. Yeah. And if you go to a major city, you can find yourself doing that. And, and it's cool. And it's, you get to see kids interacting with things. And, and that's an, an amazement that somehow gets lost in, you know, in one, in K-12 classrooms, especially elementary classrooms, because they're just not teaching science in elementary settings, at least in the early grades, because it's not being tested. And this is one of his challenges or one of his weaknesses is says, you know, assessment is driving instruction in so many schools. And they're like, well, if we're not going to start assessing science until fourth grade, then we're not going to start teaching science till fourth grade. And that's the case in a lot of states is that we're not going to teach, you know, science any, any, Compares it to this, you know, okay, like if your performance, you know, rating on like, you know, if you were like somebody who was running a call center or running like, in a, you know, somebody who was working with customers and you weren't going to be evaluated on answering emails till like maybe year three or four. And so everything was going to be about answering calls or, you know, um, meeting with people, then you would just never answer emails. And I was like, yeah, yeah, that's exactly how people operate. And that's mm -hmm. how schools have operated. Like very few schools dedicate significant amount of time to science. What they do is they'll flip back and forth between maybe science and social studies, because those aren't the focuses in the early grades. It's all about math and all about literacy. And, and those are really valid subjects to teach, but at the expense of these other things, um, I think you and I both are probably on the same page where that is, you know, a, a real weakness for education broadly in America. Yeah. And I think, you know, uh, you know, you were saying you have a colleague who listens, who's an art educator, you know, and, yeah. and, and in many <clears throat> ways, um, art education has analogies, right? Like art yeah, has absolutely. museums, art has that sense of wonder, art has, you know, their, um, but, um, and, and, English and math are are considered more fundamental, right? I mean, which is part of the reason they get taught and emphasized so much is it's like, oh, they're fundamental and so they have to be learned. But even if we take a step back from that and try and think about the idea of like, well, the way people learn is by engaging with authentic practices. And so teaching English and mathematics is some abstracted thing that is not connected to anything else in people's lives. Like you just do math problems and they say, oh yeah, we're going to do word problems. And then they have some weird, you know, culturally insensitive way of characterizing the math in this very narrow word yeah. problem. And then they say that's, that makes it 
more applied. It's, it, it, it is, you know, related to this assessment piece is this siloing piece that we are, you know, we have a microcosm of in science because we have the physics teacher, the biology teacher, the chemistry teacher, but that is just as true across disciplines, right? That we have the math teacher, we have the English teacher, we have the science teacher, and this idea that they all should be entirely separate from each other and therefore assess separately and learn separately. Like, like it, you know, it, it just doesn't make any sense. And, and it's, it does our kids a disservice. Um, so I think, yeah, I, th I think his, his point about assessment is well taken. I think it's a, in some, in some measure, it's a, it's a old saw, right. To complain about the assessment process. Cause it does drive so much in, especially in the last, you know, 15 years or so, as we've moved towards more standards-based and more assessment-based, um, you know, large scale assessments, um, it has driven a lot of the way that we think about schools and teaching. And I think that taking a hard look at that is something that I think is happening more, um, but needs, uh, needs a lot needs more to happen energy. a lot more. And, and what it's do done is it's, it's changed how we value certain subject areas, because if we don't, if we don't assess social studies, if we don't assess music, if we don't assess art, then clearly those are not as important subjects, or at least that's the inference, right? Um, and so schools are, you know, getting rid of art programs, they're getting rid of music programs, and and that is a real disservice to our our students. And so um, the assessment is this sort of like this big bad bully. Who, who is, and we're not talking about assessments. It's a, like the, you know, formative assessments or summative assessments that classroom teachers do. We're talking about these big, you know, state tests and that, that drive instruction and, and drive so much of what's happening in, in, in districts and schools. Yeah. So, yeah. So that was the first weakness he talks about his assessment. The second one he talks about is, is who's teaching. And, and he specifically is, is talking about or calling out, um, who's teaching in K to five contexts and saying that, you know, partly look, he's also calling out who's teaching at the high school level too. Right. Yeah, he does. He, yeah. he does, but not to the degree. I mean, I think right. his, his larger point is about sort of the starting out. Like one of the points that he makes in here that I think, I think he makes it here, but maybe he makes it in the next, in the curriculum section, but I think it's here um, is this idea that, you know, science is like a spiral. So the ideas that kids are exposed to in elementary school are, are similar to the ideas that they're being exposed to in middle school or that they're engaging with, but, but there's different depths and levels right. of that engagement and therefore K to five or K to four, however your school is structured. Yeah. Is, is really important because those are when those, you know, unlike other areas that don't exactly do that, um, that don't have that structure to their curriculum. Um, this is, this is true. And so K five teachers are really important. And historically we do know that th there's a problem, um, for elementary teachers. I mean, one that they have to have, they have to be experts at everything, which is already very difficult right. to ask of people. Um, and then they tend not to be as a rule, people who love science and take a lot of science classes. So their science content knowledge is not necessarily super robust. So this leads to them often feeling uh, uncomfortable te teaching science. Um, and, and I think and, that's a fair assessment. I mean, you and I have both yeah. worked with, you know, the LED majors um, at our respective institutions. I've, I've taught the science methods class uh, for a number of years with um, the, the folks who would be teaching pre-K to four. Um, and, and I see that firsthand. I see that there's a real fear 
um, with science, there's a real dislike because of their own experiences. And I think that gets back to the, I think the root problem is how it's taught, you know, and, and it comes back to, and I wish he would have made that, that connection better, right? Is it's like, it, it is a, um, the problems that we have, it, it almost, what it shows is the need for different ways of teaching it, right? That the problem we have isn't because of, you know, these, you know, pre-service teachers who have a fear, a dislike, uh, a lack of depth of knowledge. It, it comes from the standpoint of how we are teaching it so that those students have gotten to that point, right? If we had taught it differently, then they wouldn't be fearful of it. If we taught it differently, they'd feel, they wouldn't feel like outsiders. I mean, basically, they're kind of the people that Brian is trying to reach, just a different segment of those types of people that Brian are trying to reach. These are outsiders. These are people who feel outside of science, right? right. And But I think, yeah, yeah, I agree with all that. And then I think the thing that I would add is, you know, my colleague, Carla Zembelsall and two other people, Heidi Carlone and, and Michelle Brown, wrote a really nice piece about thinking about not thinking about elementary school teachers in a deficit way, right? right? And so thinking about, look, here, the, the thing that elementary teachers do a lot better than middle and high school teachers is they actually engage with their kids. They listen to their kids. They talk yeah. to their kids. They respect their kids' ideas. So that kind of, you know, and we're generalizing, obviously, in both directions. But the point is, they have a lot of assets that are useful in the way that we want science instruction to happen. Um, and to ignore that, and and those assets they have in much larger quantity than their middle and high school colleagues who do not tend to have those attributes or those perspectives or those those skill sets. So trying not to take a deficit lens here and saying, look, these elementary teachers um, have things that they bring to the table that are powerful Absolutely. that we need to to leverage and take advantage of. Um, but you know, so you could have framed it two different ways there that I think would have been rather than looking at it as just a weakness. I mean, he clearly calls it a weakness. Um, yeah. So he sees it from a, like a deficit standpoint. I mean, he could have framed it from like, what, what things do they bring to the t table to uh, that is a value added that we can, you know, draw upon. Right? right. And he could also use that to possibly frame the need for, you know, different methods of teaching science. I mean, come back to the, the premise at hand. And I think that's the, the bigger idea. You know, it's interesting the way that you say that because uh, uh, the, the, the art colleague who listens, she shared uh, an article with me maybe a month or so ago that just has been resonating with me. And the, the question, the, the, this article, the, the big question is, are you teaching the tradition or are you teaching your students? And that's at the heart of what you're saying right there. Yeah. I think so often we teach the tradition, right? We are teaching, you know, the, what, what tradition says about tradition, um, yeah. about the science, about the concepts, about our, our classrooms. And, um, and we're not necessarily teaching the students in front of us. And that gets at the, absolutely at the heart of what you're saying there. Yeah. 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 So let's, um, yeah, I mean, let's, talk about the other weaknesses because then he, we can talk about what he proposes as strengths and then solutions. But um, yeah, so the, the third one is this idea of a curriculum for everyone. And, and what he means by this is this sort of um, textbookification, generification <laughs> of, see, there you go. I saw there. it. If you're playing yeah. bingo, Scott yeah. just made up a word. 
Right. So, um, but this idea that like the way that we tend to think about curriculum is in the form of textbooks and textbooks in many respects are the worst case scenario, because if they're going to be saleable, they have to map onto all these different state standards. Now with NGSS, that may shift a little, we'll see, but, but the idea that like, okay, to do that, you have to sort of cover everything. And then what teachers do is treat that like they have to cover everything, even though the textbook included everything just so they could get it sold in all these different places. Um, and he also talks about how this curric- this generic curriculum, it tends to have a cultural perspective on it, right? Which yeah. means it, it doesn't, it doesn't represent the diverse, uh, population that is in the United States. It tends to be very narrow. And, and I think that I, I've, I've see a future in which the textbook has a much less of a um, an influence over schools, and maybe that's me just being, you know, uh, optimistic. But I I see that as being the case, because um, I think one of the things that we're seeing right now with this in between world we're living in is that people are seeking out other ways of, you know, getting stuff to students, getting content to students, getting things to students, um, because you know. I'm, textbooks aren't, I mean, so some schools don't have enough textbooks to send them home with every single student, right? Mm-hmm. And so if the students are working from home or in some sort of hybrid location, um, some days in school, some days at home, they don't have the textbooks. And I think what it's doing is opening people's eyes to the fact that, okay, well, you know, we're just doing fine. We're doing okay without a textbook. Um, and I don't mean just putting it on, you know, a device, but I'm mm-hmm. like looking at it and saying, oh, there are other ways that we can get students to engage. And that's my, my hope is because, you know, I, I feel like um, textbooks are another big bad bully, right? That drives schools. And, and what they're basically, these, these industry, this industry is doing is just going, okay, well, if we sell books to California and we sell it to Texas, then voila, we have enough. And, they, and, and that's where they write the textbooks for. Everybody else just gets it. Just gets it right, exactly, yeah. and and so my hope is that um, schools start to see, and I also think that open movement is 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 huge right now, is 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 growing. I can't, it's not huge yet, but it's growing. It's growing in the K, in 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 higher ed, and I think what's going to happen is that's going to trickle down into the K to twelve, and it should have because we should. And now I I don't even see that really as a mention. I was hoping he was going to mention it in uh, this chapter. Um, when he started to talk about um, textbooks, but he didn't, um, yeah. because like with open, you know, we we've talked about it, it was that an uh, episode here that we talked about the open science movement, like yeah. uh, open yeah. science, yeah. yeah. And you know, I see that as a as being something that's going to um, diversify the voices that play a role, and and maybe possibly. Um, you know, reduce the influence of textbooks in our schools. That's yeah, what, I mean, that's my I hope. Think, yeah, I think one of the interesting things, you know, going back to your point about uh, um, sort of, we both read this chapter um, and sort of found things that we disagreed with, right? And I think in, in the context of this podcast and what we talk about um, in terms of really, in some respects, how technology influences, you know, currently the this weird in-between space where we're learning, um, I think part of the reason that I struggled with this chapter is he, Brian really sees technology as, as a solution to a lot of these problems or a place where science, science education can advance on these, 
on these issues. Um, and yet the choices that he makes feel very strange to me in yeah. terms of the, which technologies are the right solutions to push forward and why. Um, like he's big so, on the VR, like VR, like virtual reality. He's like all in on that. He is. And he's, his new work is a lot about that too. Um, but, but I think, you know, I think that's probably why you and I had the most trouble with this chapter of all of them, because he tries he does transition into proposing solutions and those solutions are largely technology based and our that's our little corner of the science ed universe that we care about in particular which is around how does technology support learning right and and so that's why i think i certainly and i'm assuming you had objections or differences of opinion about what what the right path forward is in terms of what technologies and and the way he talks about texts and textbooks was definitely one of them. Right. Yeah. And and the virtual reality piece, I, I think, so I, I have a, a good bit of experience with virtual reality. And when he says, hey, look, you can get a you know Google Cardboard headset for five bucks. Yeah. But he doesn't talk about the device that actually has to drive the thing, right? You have to, mm, yeah. you know, you have That's to have a, some- A mobile phone, a, smartphone. Some sort there. of mo mobile, you know, smartphone to do it. And so we're talking- now that $5 Google Cardboard is now much more than that. And, and so, but the other part about it is the, and, and again, maybe he's being optimistic and, and looking ahead and seeing where virtual reality can go, but um, they're immersive experiences and they're really rich experiences, but they're still largely mostly passive experiences where you can go through and experience things in a clumsy way um, where you kind of feel like you're there. Now, now I know that like, which is going to be really funny when we come back around to, you know, our, our joys for the week, this is going to be really funny um, oh, because there's, a, there's some irony here. But I think that when he talks about Google Cardboard, and he talks about YouTube and all those things, the virtual reality that you're seeing there is not the immersive experiences that like other systems or other things are offering. Right. Mm -hmm. And so they are, um, they're, are immersive, but they don't lead to the type of generative science education that he is proposing in the other six chapters of this book, right? Which, yeah, right. No, and, I think that's right. I think it's, it's, you know, I mean, some of the things that he's talking about, like, you know, that textbooks could be written and written, maybe even in air quotes, but sort of this this idea that they could be dynamic, right? That they could be responsive to the audience. So that if I'm, you know, a kid from inner city Philadelphia and I'm black and I'm poor, then I might read a different textbook about the same content than somebody who is, you know, affluent and white and living in the Philly suburbs because those textbooks could be responsive in some way. They could have yeah. different narrators. They could have different examples. They could have, they could be, yeah. And, you know, I hear that. Um, and then I say, why are they reading a textbook, whether yeah. it's online or not? Like what, what that's not, that seems to run counter, as you say, to the six chapters we've just read. Now I do understand, you know, from his point of view, there's this component of, of the linguistic um, component of it and how some of his studies that he's talked about and how he's used, used online platforms to sort of, to engage with that, um, have shown his his interest in in how to use online platforms to support you know the learning of science as a language, um, but still, man, like textbooks online, I'm just like it's not. Well, I think he's I think he where he's going, and and I don't disagree with him on this. Is the 
that there's a customizable nature for online digital text, right? And mm-hmm. and that he sees that as you know being valuable. If we if somebody can go in and say, you know, I want to you know customize this for for me for my cultural background for my setting for you know if we want to have somebody you know read this to us with you know a pittsburgh accent maybe <laughs> i don't know why anyone would want that but like replace all the yous with yins yin you know? um i don't know why you'd want to do that but certainly you could um but i think that's one of the opportunities or again you know maybe affordances of some of that but i and like really what's the impact of it um yeah. Right. Because the know. fundamental thing is the model there is still maybe I'm over over um, interpreting his words, but but the model still seems to me like okay, I'm the person, the kid reading the explanation yeah. of somebody else. Even in the in the examples where he's like, you know, wouldn't it be great if kids this year could record an explanation of this phenomenon, and then the kids next year could listen to them. And, and that that's a powerful experience for those kids who are creating that media. And I agree, it is a powerful experience for those kids creating that media. But for the next group who are just watching somebody else explain Passive. it, it's not that much different than, right. than the other one. So, so I don't know, there were just... just it just seemed like a disconnect. It seemed like a disconnect yeah. from the... So he's done this really good job for like the six chapters in an introduction of laying the framework of here's the possibilities of science and then to finish with this, that's like sort of like a disconnect with uh, you know this premise that he's he's proposing. I think is 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 difficult for me. It was a it was a difficult part for me. And I I would say that this is where I push back the most is is he was saying we should view scientists as mm-hmm. as a solution for us, right? Mm-hmm. And. And that, you know, there's all these scientists out there who are working, who are experts in their field, and they have so much content area knowledge that we should use them as a, as a resource. And I won't disagree with any of that. Mm. But I think it where you, if you're going to have them come into your classroom or have them somehow play a role with an after school activity or like some summer camp or something, and then have this be the type of science education that you want to have happen that is a huge disconnect. They're not going to buy into this or not even understand it or not even because if they've been successful in science, it's because they've been able to be successful in the mode that they were in, right? And so, and that mode is so far detached or removed from this type of teaching or even with the, you know, the sort of phenomenon-based science that we've talked about here with NGSS, you know, or like the cross-cutting concepts or all of this, right? All of the the reform-minded science pedagogy is so, you know, removed from the practices that most of the people who have excelled in science have experienced. And yeah, yeah that's going to be a huge challenge. There's going to be a huge divide. And I, I would, that's where my big disagreement comes from. Yeah. I, and I think to build on that, in addition to that, you know, the reality is scientists have jobs, yeah. right? And their job is to produce new knowledge. And while, because they have NSF funding or whatever, they have an outreach component to their lives and they have to go work in schools, like they're not going to commit the kind of time and energy that really is needed to do this well. So that's, that's thing one to your point. Yeah. They, they can't do it very well without a lot of training because this isn't what they do. Right. So they're not, yeah. so they need, a, you know, the people who are committed to this, who are science teachers, 
they're struggling with it. So these yeah. folks who are scientists, like, and then the third one that I, whenever this comes up, cause this comes up a lot in my teaching and learning class, when we talk about like communities of practice and how do you think about that? And there's this suggestion that like, oh, we should just expose kids in school to scientists. And it's like, that's not scalable. Yeah. Like there are a lot of scientists at Penn state, but if we divide them out across the schools, like they're not going to be many to go and visit for very long. So, so just the idea that there's a scalable solution where scientists are the people that are going out and doing this, I think it just doesn't work for me. So I think, yeah, that, that one, I, I struggled with, um, though I did, you know, to, take it onto the positive side you know, I think, I think that he, a thing that he does do that I agree with is say, look, we have to think about, you know, he specifically targets two areas outside of K-12 school. One is the, the three to six, you know, like the, basically the after school. So how do we right. think about that time as a productive time to help kids learn science? And again, I think a lot of this is targeting K to five or K to six or whatever, but I think he's talking about it generally. And then he's talking about informal spaces and how we need to get more kids access to those spaces and environments where they're, you know, they're going to an outdoor center, they're going to a museum, or they're doing a science camp, or they're doing stuff that is, that is science, but isn't, you know, it, it builds on this, this thing that you mentioned earlier, which is this idea of wonder, right? Is that yeah. if we can produce, help them, um, wonder about the world and think about it in that way, then, then we can, we can transform how kids think about science, even if it's not necessarily happening in their school. I think the other part that he brings up and that I absolutely think is necessary is the diversifying the, the teacher workforce. Um, and that's a, I think we both recognize as a, a real challenge <laughs> is that, you know, the, and I'm sure you see this in your classes and I certainly see it in mine in you know our our teacher education classes are not diverse places um you know we're preparing mostly white folks and that's just the nature of well, it is i won't say it's the nature it's just what we have and we have to like look at what are the systemic issues that are you know, leading to that. And sometimes it's the, it's the folks who are really good at science. If they're coming from a, you know, a, a, a culturally diverse background, maybe they're getting kind of like pushed out of education as an opportunity for them. Um, Cause if you're a really good minority student in science, um, you know, a, uh, a biology professor is going to like say, look, you can go to med school. You can go get a PhD in biology. You're going to be, you know, they're going to identify different paths for you. And mm -hmm. um, one, they're in small numbers to begin with. And then two, the, the folks who do stand out are usually counseled out of it. And so that is a systemic issue. Um, and I think that's a, not just science, it's across the boards. Like, mm -hmm. you know, the teacher education, you know, the people in teacher, uh, you know, yeah, our teacher, teacher workforce is not that diverse. Right. Yeah. And I think, yeah, I agree with that. And, you know, I mean, one of the things I think we're, we're recognizing, or I'll just say I'm recognizing more that I didn't <clears throat> recognize was things like Brown versus Board of Education and how um, that, what a huge impact that had in a negative way on, yeah. on, on black teachers, right? So a huge percentage of the teachers that were actively teaching in the public schools in this country uh, who were black uh, specifically 
left teaching or were forced out of teaching when schools were desegregated. And, and the loss of that is something that I don't think we've ever quite recovered from. And, uh, and so I do think, so A, yeah, I agree with you. Um, and I agree with Brian that that's a critical thing. I think the other thing though, that has to happen um, is that our, our institutions of teacher education have to recognize that a, the people that we're producing are mostly white and, and they're going into schools that are mostly white, which means we have to, we have to help them understand what that means. Like we yeah. have to make, make science education, teacher preparation inclusive of an understanding of whiteness and race and why it matters and how science has contributed it, uh, contributed to it being a thing, right? Like race is a scientific it, I have to be careful here because it's not scientific in that sense, but it was created by science, right? right. Like scientists are the people who named these categories and, and used evidence, quote unquote, evidence to produce these categories that we now are living with and are being used as, um, as frankly, as a weapon, but certainly a, a, and, as a and way to divide. As yeah. a way to divide and 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 I, I so a couple things with that is one you know you've talked about this in in other episodes but ambitious science teaching I think gets it gets at that it gets at some of that um, <clears throat> and and the and the points you talk about with Brown versus uh, um, the Board of Education you know that if you're to think that the, like like in the 1950s it was more we had a more diverse teacher workforce than we do today is wild it is wild to think about that and if you're wondering a little bit about that check out there's a revisionist history episode from i don't know maybe season two go back uh this is the malcolm gladwell um podcast revisionist history there's one in and where i talk about the how when you know uh brown versus board of education came down what they basically did was all of the schools that had um you know black teachers, they basically made them, you know, teaching assistants and, and things and, or disqualified them. And uh, so while they de desegregated schools, they also pushed out a lot of our minority teachers out of, out of teaching. And so it's that, and I think we're still seeing that we're still seeing the outcomes because we've had generations of, of teachers, generations of, of, of students who've come through who haven't seen um, a black or brown face teaching science or teaching anything, right? And and so that's the, the common question I ask my students is, when did you have your first black teacher? When did you have your first black male teacher? And for a lot of the students that I work with, they say never, they say never. They've never had a person of color teaching them. And that is a challenge. That is a systemic challenge for us. And so um, we gotta do better. We have to just do better. Yeah. Yeah, and and I think your point is well taken in that um, the we still we have to actively recruit. So we have to agree with Brian on that. And and there are right. challenges, and we have to think about how to overcome those challenges. Um, and and you've named them right. I mean, the challenges that we know already for white students is yeah. that it, there are much better opportunities as a graduate with a, a science degree than teaching science um, in terms of money, right? So we're, we're playing this game of trying to convince people that there are other benefits to teaching or, or we're just counting on enough people to want to do it, have the, whatever it is, the, the feeling that they are contributing by doing this. 
Um, but that's a, you know, that's not a good long-term strategy. So we do have to think about how to recruit people into this. Cause I know, I mean, one of the things that I think you and I are both aware of is what's been happening to the, to the population of pre-service teachers, especially in science, but across the board, right? Like when I got to Penn state in 2004, we had, we were graduating, you know, 40, between 40 and 50 teachers, somewhere around 40, let's say on average every year um, in, across disciplines, biology, chemistry, physics, or science. This year, I will graduate 14. Like yeah. that is that is not a small change. That is a catastrophic change. And, and we're still like, we're still one of the biggest programs in the state. And that is bananas. Like we yeah. cannot continue along that path because what that means is we're going to have to very soon start hiring people into these jobs that are not qualified to do them. Um, and that makes me really nervous. Yeah. The same things happen at, at, at Millersville. I mean, we've had, um, there was one semester where I had five physics students that I was supervising as they were doing, doing their student teaching. I mean, think about that, like five. We graduated five physics people this year. I think this year we're going to graduate, I think, eight science people completely, like, total. like yeah. yeah, in total. And it's just like wild to think that we've, you know, in just, you know, a decade, you know, that we, we've had that sort of like, and it's not that we don't have science majors. It's just that they're not going into education. And that's, right. and that's going to create some real challenges for our schools. And it is a national trend. Like just to say, yeah. like this is not that Millersville and Penn State are not doing a good job preparing teachers. This is systemic. Like if you, yeah. I talk to my colleagues at a, a universities all across the country, and everybody has seen these kind of drops. And it's happening. It is happening across teaching, but it is most extreme in the in the STEM fields, right? In math and science, particularly preparation. Like those those numbers have just plummeted. Yeah. And um, and so in that context, to talk about recruitment is is tough, right? Like we're, we're, yeah, I want to recruit like hell. I'd love to double the number of my, of students in my program, but it's really hard. Um, so yeah, that's, and that's a sad, that's a sad statement. Well, this has turned into, uh, us being a bunch Debbie of negative Downer. Debbie Downers, negative Nellies. Yeah. Look at us. Yeah. Woo. Oof. Well, uh, I think there is, there, there's some good stuff in this chapter, but I don't think that it is, um, as universally applicable as some of the others. I think this is like really inside baseball. Um, and it some, sometimes doesn't always feel connected to the premises um, laying out in the other six chapters. It seems as it's much less personal. And it also is looking at science education from a global perspective that I don't always necessarily, I, I guess maybe I agree with some of his premises, but I don't agree with his solutions. And so, um, yeah. Yeah. I I'm with you. I think, um, I think, and, and I'm not even sure that the problems, like some of the problems he identifies are weaknesses and strengths, um, are ones that I would identify, identify as the key ones. Yeah. Um, but I'm not sure that I agree even with hundred percent with those, but certainly when he gets to the solutions, I, we, we deviate more, but yeah. you know, it's also good that people approach these problems differently, right? Like if we all try and solve the problem in the same way, that that's not necessarily a productive path forward either. Like we have to have people using different ideas, trying to unpack these problems in different ways and, and, uh, and 
try and solve them because uh, one thing I think you and I and Brian all agree on is that we're we're in a bad place right now in science education, and and that is evidenced in in things like the public discourse on science, right? Like our our how we talk about um, how science happens, you know, the in, this in, the fact that we're in between right now is a result of COVID, and and COVID is a is an instance of us seeing science happen in the public. And we've talked about this before um, in front of all of us. And, and I think it, it um, shows something about the way that the general public understands science and it's not a great understanding of science. And that makes, makes me and I know you and Brian and lots of science educators real nervous. It creates real challenges for having like, ah, good conversations around the things that are happening in our society whenever basic scientific knowledge is not uh, there. Yeah. Yep. And, or even a distrust of science. And, uh, you know, and I think yeah, that distrust, right. the distrust of science comes from a lack of knowledge, like a lack of knowledge of the processes, a lack of knowledge of the ways that we build understanding. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I think that's where that distrust comes from. All right. Do we want to transition into our joys? After we, I feel like we need it today. We got some whiplash going on. Uh, I know. Here. I feel like we need it. We need it. And All right. Well, I think you you have been uh, fired up to share something. So I, I want you to. Well, I, I would say it first. was it was, you know, the uh, VR part of this chapter is the part that I think uh, we we both talked a little bit about. But I will say I'm going to like kind of go in a different direction because uh -huh. um, I for Christmas, we bought uh, a, uh, a VR headset for the, the, the family. So we bought an Oculus Quest and it is pretty sweet and it's pretty cool. And I will say that it's not the, um, it's not the Google cardboard. Uh, it's much more immersive, but it's still a single player type of thing. Like it's, it's not one where, um, but it is wickedly awesome and it is so much fun and if you're a gamer it's something that you need to include um into you're gonna give us like your top game in oculus quest uh well i don't know there's it, it's 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 hard to say because each one plays to different different things um but okay. it's yeah it's just it's been a blast for the whole family and so that's what be my recommendation is check it out uh they're a little they're a little hard to find and they're um a little pricey but in the same sense, it does create some really cool experiences. Okay. Yeah. All right. Oculus Quest. Yes. Yeah. Um, so I'm going to go a, a very different direction than Oculus Quest. So, uh, <laughs> but, uh, but we'll stick with the theme that we have, which is I'm going to recommend a podcast. Um, and this one I think is relevant for, for um, sort of this solutions thing and this, some of the hard issues that we were talking about. So there's a podcast called Scene on Radio. Um, and it's, they've done multiple seasons of this, uh, and it's out of Duke university and it's seen as in S C E N E, like a scene in a play scene on radio. And, um, and John Bewin is the sort of Uber organizer of this and he's at Duke. Um, but he, and he's not a faculty member. He does this. He's former NPR. You've probably heard him. If you're an NPR nerd, you've heard him on NPR, but he has one co-host in particular, this guy, Chenjirai Kumanika and Chenjirai in full disclosure was a Penn state grad. I did not know him when he was here, but he's now faculty at Rutgers. Um, and, their, their first season was about whiteness. And um, I listened to it years ago now, but it was, 
it, it was and remains, I think, some of the best media I've ever ever um, consumed. And they this year did a series on democracy. Those same two guys, so John and Chendra, I got back together again, um, and and it was also phenomenal. Maybe better than whiteness. I don't know. They were both pretty amazing. But um, but I mean, they're not they're not light. They're not easy. You know, you referenced the the um, revisionist history that was about Brown be uh, uh, Board of Education. It's it's similar in, in flavor in that these really tackle tough issues. Um, sure. But the two guys are are thoughtful and really have a great chemistry. And the issues they bring up are ones that we as a country really need to think deeply about. Um, so while it doesn't bring me joy in the same way that Oculus Rift might, um, it quest. is certainly something. It's the Quest, that, not the Rift. Oh, sorry, o- <laughs> Oculus Quest. Uh, uh, it is certainly something that I I highly recommend um, you spending some time with um, because it's it's great and um, and it really uh, expands your understanding of our country and the role that race has in our country and and specifically if you're a white person that first episode or first season about whiteness is powerful i'll check that out because i'm looking for new recommendations you know as i you know listen more and more yeah yeah that's awesome all right there we are there we are i i think there's a conclusion chapter right to uh it's brief so it's brief wrap up thoughts and the conclusion chapter next time. Yeah. And so thank you for joining us along this podcast journey of uh, this little book club and uh, you know, definitely check us out um, on, on the, on our website with the uh, you know, we're at fireside. We'll put a, I mean, I guess that could be put in yeah. so that, you know, reach out to us. Seems Give us a recursive to be, yeah, but yes, please. There is, I think there's a contact form there too. So we should. Yeah. Check. And, and if you've, you've been along this journey with us, definitely reach out, give us a little idea of, uh, cause you know, I've, I've enjoyed having this sort of conversation around this. So it's a, it's a good medium for me. I'm hoping it's working for others. I've actually never seen something like this out there. So I don't know as a podcast listener, whether, you know, it would be something that would be a, I, I to read along with somebody I think is, you know, kind of a novel experience. So if you, if you've done this with us, reach out, give us a yell, you know, we look forward to hear from you. So, all right. I guess we'll see you next time. In between. In between. See you there. 